my son looked at the book and was like, are you reading that all? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, how far are you? I'm like, is this right? He's like, you have a long way to go. <laughs> it's like, he's, we'll he's seven. We you asked know. you, kid. Yeah. He's like, how long has it taken you? You're kind of slow. You know? <laughs> you know, it doesn't it even feel like it, but it, it's been, I guess it has been over a year. Over a year recording. But it doesn't oh feel like God. it at all. I'm shocked. I had no idea. Yeah. yeah this, this, is, this is the 13th session tonight. Oh my God. I didn't even wow. think about that. Wow. Physiology, a complex yet logical and internally consistent system that maintains our precious bodily fluids. You are listening to an accounting of our two year mission to explore and develop a functional mental model of the workings of the kidney and its associated functions. To understand completely how the kidney accomplishes its primary mission of establishing and maintaining homeostasis, this is Channel Your Enthusiasm the Burton Rose Cocktail Club, and Variety Hour. My name is Joel Toff, and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we are discussing Chapter 11, Part 2, continuing our walk through acid base, where we get down to the molecular nitty-gritty of renal hydrogen handling. We have a full crew tonight. Juan Carlos. Juan Carlos, J.C. Villas, nephrologist at Auctioner in New Orleans. Happy to be back. Excellent. Melanie. Melanie Honig at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Josh. Josh Waitzman, also at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston. Leticia. Leticia Rallone here at uh, UCSF in San Francisco. Roger. Roger Rush University Medical Center, Chicago. Anna Gaddy. I'm Anna Gaddy. I am at Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And Amy. I'm Amy Yao. I am currently jobless, but soon to start at The Ohio State University. The Ohio State University. Yeah, forget the V. That's oh, the can't forget the V. Yeah. <laughs> Arch nemesis in Ohio. Does that make it the Harvard of the Midwest if you have a the? That, that's the University of Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was, thought that was the Northwestern. <laughs> okay, maybe it's not so Okay, very good. Okay, anybody have any opening remarks before we dive right in here? I do. I have always wondered about this whole acid ash, alkaline ash thing. When people talked about that in the old days, I had no idea what they were talking about. And apparently what that is, is they would take a meal, I guess your diet, what you were going to eat, and then somehow completely combust it, then assess the ash, literally, <laughs> and see if it was alkaline or acid. And then based on that, then they would, I guess, go back and see what your kidneys did with that alkaline or acid ash. That's incredible. That is wild. Is wild. You know, in um, uh, Homer Smith's uh, Fish to Philosophy, talks about the ashes of our bodies. Uh, Body fires. Fires, yeah. You know, I think that's that's actually what we're talking about. It's incredible. When you read about it, they always talk about it as being this crazy, wild, exotic diet, this alkaline ash diet. And it's like large fractions of the world's population eat that on a daily basis, right? There's a huge vegetarian populations and they're all an alkaline diet. 
right? I think it's one of those things. It's another one of these subtle Western microaggression. Uh, I'm not sure of a microaggression, but certainly biases in terms of what we thought was normal, right? We had this whole impression of what was a normal diet was, and it really was based on a, actually a very select population of the world eating this kind of rich uh, animal protein diet. Well, clearly it was part of our evolution where we wouldn't you know, have such an important acidification mechanism. So, well, we have important alkaline alkalinization mechanisms also, right? I mean, we, we have both, both those things are well-developed in the body, right? You can have a highly alkaline diet and you're just fine as long as you don't get volume depleted. Yeah. But you don't need a buffer for alkaline. You just, you eat, if you ingest alkaline, you can just dump it. That's, that's the difference that I'm trying to make. Right. Right. Okay. Excellent. So we are starting, if you have the, if you're looking at the printed copy, we are on page 340. Anybody who thinks we're not making progress, we're on page 340. That's a lot of pages that we've digested already. That's a, that's outstanding. And, and I want to say that I know that the, I might have to change my script because it's going to be a three-year mission. I know I, we've been advertising this to be a two-year mission. No way. Three years, three years. <laughs> He starts this section, he says, the ability to excrete hydrogen as ammonium ion adds an important amount of flexibility to the renal acid base regulation. And the, and the main reason for this is that ammonia and ammonium production and excretion can be varied according to physiologic need. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that more after this, but he, this section is really just focused on, well, what happens with this ammonia and ammonium? And he starts with, there's ammonia production in the tubular cells. And once you produce this ammonia, since it's neutral, it diffuses into the tubule. This is in the proximal tubule where it's acidified by the low pH into ammonium or NH4. So you take NH3 that you produce in the tubule cells, it diffuses into the tubule where it's immediately turned into NH4. Because any of the NH3 that diffuses through turns into NH4, you maintain a very low concentration of ammonia, which allows continued diffusion from the tubular cells into the tubular fluid. And, and that's based on NH4 plus, and that because it's plus now, it can't diffuse back. And exactly. It's trapped. It, and this is a this is a, a common theme. It's called ion trapping, where you'll have the neutral compound will diffuse across. It will then be converted by some process. In this case, it's just acidification with the low pH in the tubular fluid to turn ammonia into ammonium. And then that eliminates that parent molecule so you can get a continued diffusion and that what you turn it into this NH4 because it's charged can't diffuse back. And so ion trapping, we also see this with um, aspirin toxicity. They also use ion trapping to move aspirin out of tissues, which is why you want to alkalize the whole body and out of the renal tubular cells. And that's why you want to alkalinize the urine in that process, in that toxicity. I, I want to make a comment because I have to say, I was a little confused when I read this chapter uh, in terms of what is actually coming out of the tubular cell. Because when you look at the ammonia, NH3, that is recycled, I did understand clearly that ammonia is going to come out into the lumen and then, as you said, we'll bind a hydrogen ion form ammonium, NH4. But there's a paragraph in this chapter that specifically says that it's NH4 that is produced in the tubular cell and comes out. And it comes out, even mentions the sodium hydronate exchanger, how ammonium NH4 uses the, the site that the protein uses to get out of the proximal tubular cell. So... I, I got a little bit mixed there, but it, it seems that there are two phenomena occurring uh, in parallel that kind of maintain the system. 
Yeah, this is one of those spots where he like presents a really simple idea and then says like, it is now clear that this model represents an oversimplification and that NH4 plus excretion can be viewed as occurring in these other steps and stuff and stuff and stuff. I just think like the, the key idea here that you have like neutral ammonia diffusing down its concentration gradient, ending up in the tubule, getting trapped there with that proton is so cool. And I just wrote in my notes here, like it, it's like a self-refilling buffer. It just keeps adding more buffering agent to it over and over and over again. And you're never going to run out of ammonia. And so you're always going to have more capacity to bind up those hydrogen ions in that in that tubular fluid. So yeah, so JC, you're exactly right. So he says that this is an oversimplification, just like Josh mentioned, and that he then breaks it down to three major steps. And we're going to, because we're covering the whole damn book in yeah. every detail, we're going to go through all three steps. So the three steps are Leticia, do you want to say something? I'm sorry. Before you do that, just because I do think that that we're teaching you the young learners sometimes, many times when we see acute kidney injury and we see like with the imbalances that are happening between all the, you know, the electrolytes, acid-based status, a lot of, I remember seeing this in early on saying, oh, well, you get metabolic acidosis AKI because of impaired ammonia genesis. And so what I want to say is that even though like this is a very important complex and in many ways, a very beautiful process to remember that it's this process is the paired ammonia genesis that can lead to some of the acidosis that we're seeing with lower GFR with tubular injury. I think that's, it's important to remember at least like what is the mechanism, even if you don't remember all the details. Yeah, I, I completely concur. I think this is to me, from my model of how the kidney works, this section on ammonia genesis was one step too complex. I, I can't hold this in my brain. It doesn't help me clinically solve any otherwise mysteries. I like the simple approach, but I figured we would cover this. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a good point is like, when do you stop talking about, because you can break all these steps down into even further steps, I'm sure. But I think usually we as physicians stop breaking things down when we stop having interventions or when they're stopped becoming clinical, you know, relevance to each separate thing as a separate component, because otherwise, why are we thinking about it? But I'm with JC, like when I read this and every time I read it, I always get confused because they talk about ammonia diffusing across and then binding the hydrogen in the tubular lumen. But then they also talk about the generation of ammonium. And I always just get confused. It makes sense to me how this process would help with like getting rid of further acids if it binds a hydrogen ion in the tubular fluid. But it doesn't make sense to me how it's an effective getting rid of acid if by the process it's creating ammonium it's secreted like yeah. it leaves as a positive cation and then it's generated as like one plus and leaves as one plus and so unless glutamine is somehow being recycled across binding other hydrogens in the body to be secreted across like it just it always confuses me <laughs> maybe after tonight it will be clear to me but i don't know well, the the only way you're going to get rid of a, an h plus is to have made that h plus and you make that h plus by by taking h2o and co2 and making a bicarbonate an H plus. So anytime you make an H plus that leaves the body, you've had a net HCO3 go in the body. Mm -hmm. So no matter how, all when, when all this recycling is done and said and done, which makes no sense to me whatsoever, I can't <laughs> follow it. I'm so far behind you guys, it's ridiculous. But that's the concept that's important here is that you do have an H plus in the urine. And if that leaves the body, then you have a net HCO3 that enters the body. Yeah, I and guess it's bound, just... and it's bound is, you know, it's buffered by the ammonium. Because if you put all that if you put, you know, your 60 millimoles of hydrogen ion in your urine in a liter of urine in a day, your urine pH will be 1.3 or something. And, mm -hmm. and so it really needs to be buffered. And by buffering, you know, it brings the urine pH up to six uh, or seven or whatever it happens to be. You know, ammonium, ammonium uh, it's not a great buffer. Buffers are best when the pH is close to the pK of, a, of the acid-base pair. 
Here, the PK of NH3 plus NH4 plus is nine. That would not be considered a good buffer, but but it works because it because of what Joel is saying, how it allows much more ammonium to come in the cells because the um, ammonia to come in the cells because the ammonium can't diffuse back. So if it's if uh, the PK by definition is where they're both equal, so it would be whatever concentration of NH3 is the same concentration of NH4 plus. So if you increase that by ten, which would be one log, that would be a, a pH of eight. Seven would be a hundred, and pH. Uh, six would be a thousand. It's three logs different. So that's where you get the thousand to one concentration where it's a thousand times of NH4 to one to each one of NH3, which really what allows all that NH3 to come in because it's just the minute it hits the urine, there's there's protons to buff to, to bind with it, uh, which it, it's just pretty, pretty cool. That part I totally get. The recycling, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> okay, let's Let's try to educate Roger. So he says there are three major steps. The first one is NH4 is produced in early proximal tubular cells. Second is luminal NH4 is partially reabsorbed in the thick ascending limb. And then NH3 is recycled within the renal medulla. That is one step. NH4 is reabsorbed and that gets converted to NH3 because of the relatively high intracellular pH. And then that NH3 is recycled into the renal medulla. And then finally, this very high concentration of medullary interstitial NH3 diffuses into the tubular lumen in the medullary collecting tubule where it's trapped as NH4 as a way of secreting excess hydrogen ions. And then he goes through and he breaks each one of these steps down. So here's the first question that Amy had. It says the NH4 production from glutamine converts which converts to NH4 and glutamate. So you take glutamine and it's converted to NH4, ammonium, and glutamate. And then glutamate is subsequently converted to alpha-ketoglutarate. And then he says that alpha-ketoglutarate is converted to two sodium bicarbonate molecules. Everybody cool with that? I mean, he didn't walk through, I don't know what a glutamate looks like. That's what he says happens. Yeah, so that's what Roger is saying. Basically, you generate, you're generating bicarb from that base that you've created. So here he says that one glutamate turns into two sodium bicarbonates. So why do we why do we describe it then as the important part is like we're acidifying the urine when to Amy's point, we're not really acidifying the urine. It still has the same definition of if you're looking at the definition of an acid as a proton donor, it still has the same number of proton donors. The point is that we're generating bicarbonate that's resorbed. No, but right. there's still, so I think that by the generation of bicarbonate, I see it as a plus, as, a, as an additional mm-hmm. consequence of this reactions of glutamine through ammonium plus glutamate and subsequently through ketoglutarate. So there is an NH4 plus. So uh, even though the NH3 is not binding a hydrogen ion, you are getting NH4 plus, you are secreting an acid. So mm-hmm. it is getting rid of acid in addition to the generation of that bicarbonate molecule. So the NH4, the ammonium that's created, then exits the cell via the sodium hydrogen exchanger. And I kind of love that because it almost doesn't matter whether it's secreting a hydrogen here or ammonium ion here. They're both accomplishing the same goal of essentially clearing the acid load. Right. It gives, it gives a, I feel like ammonium is a sneaky guy. You know, gets uses a sodium hydrogen exchanger, uses the sodium potassium to chloride. A sneaky guy. You, it's it's a, it's, it's sneaky. I think you said sneaky, but I think in an earlier podcast, I think I said promiscuous. Uh, so, yeah. that's, more, that's more elegant. <laughs> sneaky might be more appropriate. 
Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it, but it, I it, guess that's my point, Joel, is that that's what helped me understand. Like if does it matter? I mean, it, obviously this is how it's done, but either way you're getting rid of. I think that's right. I think it's either okay. way. It's super cool that it uses the same transporter though. Just make it easy to I know understand. It is super cool, but- yeah. So then, then NH4 is then reabsorbed. So it's secreted through the sodium hydrogen exchange. See, I already hate this. I already hate this. I yeah. know. I know. It, it, deserves, <laughs> it deserves all your hate. It deserves all your hate. And then when you get to the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henley, it comes back through, it disguises itself as a potassium ion. Who the hell knows how that happens, right? And it comes through the sodium potassium 2 chloride. He says that that's important because when you have hyperkalemia and you have tons of potassium available, that antagonizes this ammonium reabsorption. So that the fact that it disguises itself as a potassium ion to get through there, sneaky guy, promiscuous guy, whatever you want to say, (laughs) that's important because we know that hyperkalemia antagonizes this process. So we know that when you're hyperkalemic, you can't generate a lot of, we always talk about this, it it antagonizes ammonia production, but maybe this is as important of it. It's just its inability to recycle this ammonia. So the NH4 enters the thick ascending limb cell, the high pH, the relatively high pH inside that cell converts it to get from NH4 to NH3. The NH3 is then diffuses into the collecting duct where it then rapidly converts to NH4, allowing more NH3 to diffuse it. Same kind of process again. Same kind of it's because It's because the, the thick ascending, metal thick ascending loop of Hanley is impermeable to, to the NH3. So NH3 cannot diffuse back into the loop of Hanley. That's why it gets right, and it's this—it's the relative, right? It's impermeable on the apical side, but it is permeable on the basal lateral side. So it yes. allows the ammonia to get into the medullary interstitium, mm-hmm. and there it recycles. It, it talks about two locations. Part of it recycles back over to the proximal tubule. Part of it just remains in the medullary interstitium, where it's finally going to diffuse into the uh, distal collecting tubule, medullary collecting tubule where it's going to allow uh, hydrogen to further hydrogen secretion by buffering hydrogen in the urine. Is this how like the interstitium gets ammonia into it in the first place, right? This is where all those extra osms come from. So like maybe there's some sort of logic to the crazy of like throw it in the tubule, take it out of the tubule, put it back into the tubule because you put it into the tubule and then take it out somewhere in the interstitium. You kind of distribute it all through. And then a little bit of it is going to end up back in the tubule to help you hang on to those protons somewhere. I don't know. I'm trying to create some logic here where where, where none exists. I don't have any logic and I I don't understand why you would put it in and then take it out. And so by the time you get the collecting, you have to get back where you're starting at the proximal tubule. Yeah, there's a there's a segment in uh, page 341 or 343, can't remember, where he kind of talks about how the ammonium H4 plus that is produced in the proximal tubule. Because you know, I think if I'm reading Amy's, uh, I have the same <laughs> issue that if the proximal tubule is making ammonia, why don't you just go all the way down the nephron and pee it out, right? Mm-hmm. That would be so easy. <laughs> but why is this recycling necessary? And he talks about how ammonia, when the pH is not very acidic yet, you're going to have some flux of NH4 into NH3 plus H, and some of that will be diffused. So your ability to dump that ammonia from the proximal tubule would be lost, but it doesn't happen because by recycling this ammonia, you maintain a high concentration of ammonia that keeps the ammonia NH3 from diffusing back and maintaining the NH4. Mm-hmm. So you kind of lose your ammonia in that way, but luckily 
you can dump it through the collecting duct where the NH3 binds a hydrogen from the H hydrogen ATPase that is stimulated aldosterone, you form NH4 and then you eliminate ammonium. Mm-hmm. But don't get me wrong, I'm still... <laughs> so I, I think what you have said is the key to everything, right? Because, I mean, that's the question that students always ask us. If you eat potassium and it's freely filtered, why don't you just pee it out? Why do you bother going through the whole thing? And we do so we can regulate it, right? So the idea is that you reabsorb almost everything proximally. And yes, you happen to make ammonium proximally, just happens to be there. But that at the end, when you're trying to make your final urine, you have set the the perfect setup. You have the ammonium there ready and waiting so that if you should rev up the intercalated cells to put out hydrogens, you can trap ammonia. And if you also happen to have aldosterone because you want to get rid of potassium, you do that too. And if you want to reabsorb water, well, then the medullary gradient is there for you. So it's just that setup where the final urine is designed by the distal nephron. Yeah, it is amazing. It kind of resembles what we discussed, how this sodium potassium tubularical transporter in the medullary thick ascending loop of Henley sets up, does the job so that the distal tubule has it served. Okay, you decide what's going to be the final urinosmolality in the gaze of water. But here, the same site of the nephron has a critical role in determining how you're going to handle ammonium too. I, I never really had this you know, understanding how critical this site of the nephron is. Mm-hmm. We think about it just blocking by LASIK, but it's so much than that in this, this uh, co-transporter. Okay. He then goes into a bit on responses to changes in pH, which is a little bit what you guys are talking about, kind of this regulation. And he says that in the face of acidosis, you get increased ammonium excretion, and there are two processes that do that. So there's one, there's increased proximal ammonium production. And he says there's two key enzymes and one of them takes about 24 hours to rev and the other one takes about two to three days to rev. It's a slow responding system. It takes a while to rev up this ammonium production. However, within hours of an acid load, you'll see increased ammonium in the urine. And he says that this is just, you get this, this acid load decreases your urine pH, which allows more diffusion of ammonia into the in through the medullary collecting tubule and you have this ion trapping and so that's the instant response is just passive diffusion of ammonia into the tubule with that is then converted to ammonium because of the low urine pH and that if you want to look for a peak ammonium excretion it'll take 5 to 6 days which is just kind of wild how slow it how slow the kidney is to rev up right you know 0 to 60 in 5 days so you get this peak ammonium excretion that takes five to six days. And Burton Rose goes through a number of different processes that get ramped up to get this increased ammonium secretion. And so the first one he talks about is that glutamine, which is the metabolite that we turn into ammonium, usually gets picked up from the tubular fluid, right? So it's just, you know, it's filtered into glomerulus and then you reabsorb it in a, in a sodium dependent process from the tubular fluid. But if you have a big acid load, you need more glutamine. And so you're going to also pull this from the, the peritubular capillaries. And so you'll be getting it from the basal laterals as well as from the apical side of, of the tubular cell. So that's kind of cool. And then he says that uh, glutamine metabolism is pH dependent with increases in acidemia and decreases in alkalemia. So you'll adjust how your glutamine metabolism depending on the pH inside the cell. And then the net result is that the NH4 secretion, which normally is about 30 to 40 
milliequivalents per day, rise above 300 milliequivalents a day with severe metabolic acidosis. Like 300 milliequivalents of ammonium, like that's like 38 sodium bicarbonate tablets. <laughs> if you want to put that in perspective of like, all you need to do is take 12 of these three times a day. <laughs> that's what we're talking about. But it kind of, don't you think, underscores the, that it's not really that harmful to have a mild metabolic acidosis, the fact that it takes five to six days to ramp it up. I mean, if surely if that was something that you needed to live, we would have evolved to have a bit of a faster mechanism by now. Well, well, I guess but what I think I w- we forget, I think we talked about it earlier in the chapter, you, you have all these other buffering mechanisms that are happening before this happens, right? So you have carbonic anhydrase and bicarb, and then you have titratable acids, and then this gets triggered. So this yeah. is kind of like your last and you have, respira- you have respiration. Respiration, yeah. Right. So yeah. And I think that's exactly right, is that this is this is the end of a chain. And this is what you ultimately, all those short-term solutions need to have a permanent way to get rid of the hydrogen. And this is the permanent way to get to uh, get rid of the hydrogen. And I think it's okay, since you have all those other systems, for this to take a little bit of time to finally get upregulated. And my sense is it must be, there must be a significant cost in terms of energy metabolism, et cetera. You know, you're getting rid of a lot of, you're essentially consuming amino acids and protein to get rid of this acid load. So it's an energy expensive. Melanie, you had some thoughts. Well, I just was going to say that when you talk about that experimental model where it would take days to get to 300 every day. That model would be that the experimental animal is eating that diet every single day. But in our experience, hopefully, we're not having that much every day, but instead we might suddenly, I mean, I guess if you think about a hunter-gatherer, like the hunter suddenly you know, gets the prey and has to ramp up excretion of acid suddenly. And then you have your medullary ammonia there for you because it would take days to get, I mean, I think you just answered it for me because you would take days to rev up that proximal action. But if you have all that medullary ammonium ready, you know, at the ready, then if you do gorge on something you just, you know, gathered, uh, killed. Then you keep imagining you, that giant steak that Fred Flintstone had on that turned over his car, right? Then, uh, then you, you're ready to go. And I think for me, that answers a lot about why it's it is so complicated. It's for that possibility. So, so Melanie, you know, you're talking about this. Um, you know, maybe the reason that we have to have extra ammonium around for is a protein load. That gets back to the the whole be- the Brenner hypothesis about the original thought of loss of GFR associated with high protein diets. Is that the, the, the original his his original hypothesis? A great paper in New England Journal of Medicine in the seventies or something was he talked about how we evolved not as having three meals a day, but eating you know being a lion or whatever, and, and every few days catching a large protein meal, and that increased our GFR. Therefore, having a high-protein meal and having an acute increase in GFR was an appropriate response to a high-protein diet. And maybe, but that the way we eat now in a Western civilization where we have protein all the time, that is maladaptive because we're we're having glomerular hypertension on a continuous basis as opposed to a PRN basis. So it kind of feeds into that whole hypothesis that it was that we evolved for a huge, uh, you know, protein load from a kill. So I, I kind of like that. that. That kind of makes sense to me. What's the current state of the Brenner hypothesis? Like, like, so I get that that was a big thing for a while. And then I think it fell out of favor following MDRD, or at least there was a fracture, like what may have been consensus no longer was consensus. What, 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 what among really smart people, what, what's the current thought? 
I don't well, know. None, that, of us, none of us are going to talk. That's you, Roger. Uh, yeah, nobody. But I, I feel like the, the, the still the recommendation is not to restrict protein, but also not to overdo it, like the moderate, right? Like moderate. Well, I think the MD already failed because it was a because of its design more than anything, and uh, and then along came RAS inhibition, which probably you know had the same renal protective effect that it was a much easier way. And, and the MDRD was so difficult to do and, and to get to people to change, to get to the low protein diets anyway. So I think that, I don't know that it's, that it doesn't work, but I think it just fell out of favor for a lot of reasons. But we live in a world now where people adopt wild diets all yeah. the time. If they can believe that there's a real, you know, whether it's fasting or keto or whatever, what have you, people will adopt these wild diets. And and what's the, I, I don't even, I mean, plant-based diets are becoming, you know, very, very popular. And there's a lot of literature now in renal disease. So, I mean, maybe it's coming back, maybe it's having a, you know, a, a rebirth, but. I thought the Kadigo guidelines now were to, in advanced CKD, to limit dietary protein and then supplement with a. Uh, you need to be careful. The Kadoki guidelines uh, are yes. really adopting low protein diets. And I think way beyond, I mean, at least if you look at the references that they provide, it's an absurd 1A recommendation. I was I was outraged. I think Kadoki embarrassed themselves with those recommendations. I really think it was a, it was a terrible decision um, just based on their guidelines. But I don't think Kadigo has made that type of statement. Okay. Yes. Let me. That's no, that's fair. That's a, that, and that, and I think that's a, and honestly, that's a common mistake because I get all the time. Yeah. Cause Kadoki kind of largely went away when Kadigo emerged as a a guideline organization and Kadoki still exists. And what they're really usually left to do is comment on Kadigo guidelines. That's usually what you'll see Kadoki do is they'll have a comment on the most recent Kadigo guidelines. And that the idea there is that Kadigo is this international organization has to make guidelines that are going to be appropriate for every every country. And then every individual country will then make comments. And you'll see them oftentimes in society journals for that individual country say, we're adopting the Kedigo guidelines with these modifications that are more appropriate for our country. I was going to say, we're get, we sort of got off topic. You think? But, <laughs> but I was just going to oh, say I'm that. Learn. But, Sorry, this is my education. But the, um, I mean, MDRD had a lot of problems because patients were allowed to be on ACE inhibitors, which may have a similar effect to a low protein diet in essence. And also there were a lot of people who had polycystic kidney disease who were going to have progressive renal disease regardless. And 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 don't have glomerular disease as the nature of their kidney disease, right? right? It's a tubular disease. Right. So because of that, no, so it doesn't mean that there's no rationale to have uh, a reduced protein diet. And I think we would all agree that a very high protein diet is bad. So having our patients on a zone or an Atkins or something like that is not a good idea. And whether they need to be on a very low diet if they're on an ACE inhibitor and ARB is probably more of a question. And so I, I just would say that I like to ideally emphasize a very healthy diet and ideally more plant-based when possible. JC, you had some thoughts. No, yeah, this is a very important topic because patients uh, go to the internet and read Google and Google says, if you have kidney disease, you have to be in a low protein diet. So they come and, to the and clinic. And they don't have to go that far. The, the dietitians in the hospital will tell, the, tell them the mm-hmm. exact same thing. Right? Yeah, it's, it's really a, a, something that they will read or be told. So my my approach has always been the ex- excessive amount of protein is probably not a good idea. 
But the disadvantage, the potential disadvantages of low protein diet are, are there, exist. And maybe one of the reasons the MDRD trial failed, right? And we have other ways to, to attack the mechanism, which is the hyperfiltration mechanism. We have RAS blockade. Now we have AGL2 inhibitors. So my general answer is, yeah, it might be potentially beneficial, but it could also create some problems. I think we have better ways to attack your kidney disease by using these medications and just maintain a moderate diet. You know, I don't really, but I'm, I'm personally not. That's kind of my approach. One of the concerns that I had with it is, there's only three macronutrients, right? You're either getting fats, proteins, or carbohydrates. And when you say a low protein diet, you're implying an increase in carbohydrates and an increase in fats. And the patients, whether they have diabetic kidney disease or just they have kidney disease and diabetes, that's most of my patients, like well in excess of three quarters of my patients. And increasing their intake of fats and carbohydrates is really detrimental to their health in a lot of different ways. And it makes me nervous about those recommendations of low protein diets. Leticia, you thought you'd look like you have something you want to say. No, I just, I, I don't, I don't mean to repeat like what you've already said, but especially in these patients with glomerular diseases that are already like hypoalbuminemic, like I think it, it is dangerous for these patients. And sometimes we do hear this say like, well, you know, am I having all this proteinuria because, you know, should I cut the protein in my diet? And I'm like, no, no, you should not like by, you know, and so that this is why I do think these things are tricky. So what do you, what do you guys tell your patients? I mean, I tell them, they ask me, you know, I read, I supposed to not eat meat. I, I say, are you a big meat? eater? I say, don't be a big meat eater. Yeah. And that's kind of what I do. I said, you know, if you try to do what they did in these studies, you will, you'll, you'll end up with a, you know, a one cubic inch of meat for per week and, you know, you'll be miserable. You, I, don't I, you won't want to live longer. I, I push, I tell them not to eat red meat. I think there's good epidemiologic data that that's not good and they can get plenty of protein and a lot of other sources. And I think reducing red meat is probably good for not only them, but the planet. So that's, that's, there's no question. Are you doing uh, red? Are you doing meat that, that for a kidney or just a overall health? Well, I, 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 they asked me about kidney and that's, and, and okay. honestly, I, I do say the best way to protect your kidney is to protect your heart. Because most of you are going to die. And I don't say most of you are going to die, but the reality is most of them are going to die of cardiovascular disease. And so I recommend a Mediterranean diet because of that. And if they're not sure what that is, I tell them, hey, reduce you want red meat, make sure you eat more fish and chicken. And that in there was a good study, we did it a few years ago in FJC that looked at, um, it was an epidemiologic data coming out of China, looking at red meat and finding a nice association with advancing kidney disease. And in that study, pork was not considered the other white meat. That was one of the red meats. So I, I definitely say no red meat, no pork, but that's what I, that's what I tell my patients. Hmm. That's hard though. I mean, if you're trying to say, watch how much salt you're taking in. Oh, if there's any concern about potassium, which is extremely difficult to get good produce then. And then, oh, by the way, low protein on top of that. Like that is really, I mean, if people are really trying to stick to that diet, what are you supposed to eat? No, so it, like, the, the Mediterranean diet is, is going to yeah. be, it's going to usually is, is a, it, there's a lot of book, cookbooks about that. There's a lot of advice on that. It's not, it's not a rare thing. They usually can find things that even at restaurants, I don't tell people to go on a low potassium diet. No, I don't either. I but just, I just increase the diuretic. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's way too hard. But I do think that I think the so the focus on the sodium. I mean, I know that that in and of itself is also you know not not so much controversial that we have to limit salt based on all the salt that is already in our food. But but I do think that when you add the sodium, the fluid, then the potassium restriction is just too much. Like this is really like really impossible. And so, but that's interesting. I, I learned something from you. Well, I always learn something from you. But the red meat because I always try to tell my patients like every in moderation like not every day but if you have it every now and then like it's okay okay i'm gonna reel this back in or we're never gonna get through this so there's a neat paragraph on the importance of urine ph and i didn't realize the importance of this. Usually I focus when I talk about the story, I talk about that urine pH is really irrelevant to getting rid of your daily acid load. The urine pH can't get low enough. You get rid of way less than 1% of your daily acid load as hydrogen ions in the urine. What I didn't recognize or understand is how critical that low tubular pH is for all the other reactions that are important. Like you can't get titratable acidity without having a low urine pH. You can't Mm -hmm. get the conversion of ammonia to ammonium without that low urine pH. That even though it's not important for getting rid of your daily hydrogen load, it is critical for running these these other reactions. It even includes the reabsorption of uh, bicarbonate in the proximal tubule as one of these things that's critical to have a low urine pH. And I thought that was a really interesting bit and I did not recognize the importance of that. Any comments or we can move on? Yeah. A lot of thumbs up. Okay. And then we get to regulation of renal hydrogen excretion. And he starts with that net acid excretion varies inversely with extracellular pH, that the higher the pH is going to be, the lower your renal hydrogen excretion is. That totally makes sense. And that acidemia triggers both proximal and distal acidification. And he kind of walks through a lot of the processes that we talked about in last month's episode. So if you have acidemia, you're going to increase your sodium hydrogen exchange in the proximal tubule. You're going to increase your luminal hydrogen ATPase activity, right? So there's two ways to excrete hydrogen in the proximal tubule. We always think about the sodium hydrogen exchanger, but just like in the distal nephron, there's also a hydrogen ATPase. Um, And then on the basal lateral membrane, you're going to get increased sodium bicarbonate exchange, not, excuse me, it's sodium hydrogen co-transport. It's not an exchange there. Am I right? Sodium it's co- bicarbonate. Sodium but it's bicarbonate sodium bicarbonate co-transport. and it's a co-transport. It's not an exchange. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're, so you're moving sodium up its concentration gradient and bicarbonate is going down its concentration gradient from the cell into the, the basal lateral membrane, out into the basal lateral side. Is that, that's kind of weird, right? But you guys are shaking your head. I got that right. Okay. Yeah. Well, isn't that, isn't that how that works? Isn't that what helps achieve the sodium against its concentration gradient? And especially also somebody remind me the stoichiometry of that transporter is kind of cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing you need that in order to achieve that against the gradient. Okay, cool. Weird to think about, but that's cool. It's weird to think about just because in every one of these other reactions, sodium is powering it. It's sodium is moving down its concentration gradient. And, that, and this is the only one I can think of where sodium is actually moving up its concentration gradient. I like that. Okay. And, then and that's we'll, why you need to have that crazy stoichiometry in order to get it. Got it. And then you also get increased NH4 produ- production from glutamine. So all of these are stimulated by just the acidemia. And uh, he talks about this a little bit later, but it's specifically the acidemia. These are usually, uh, these proteins are pH dependent and it, they don't look at the bicarb, they don't look at the PCO2. They really are dependent on the pH to drive these things. 
So that's proximally. And then in the collecting tubules, it's just like you'd expect. You get increased hydrogen ATPase activity. And then I have reduction of tubular pH promotes diffusion of ammonia, which gets converted to NH4. And then in all capitals, I have ion trapping. But we've already talked about that. And we're back to that. And then he has this neat paragraph or two where he says, all the things we typically measure are the extracellular pH, but there's experimental evidence that what actually counts is the intracellular pH. And he says this can happen, you know, in respiratory acidosis is pretty straightforward because the CO2 just diffuses right through the lipid bilayer. And so respiratory acidosis will be transmitted inside the cell and you'll get intracellular acidosis. And then he says in metabolic disorders, a low extracellular bicarb will just cause bicarb to diffuse out of the cell, which causes intracellular acidosis. So it's just kind of the passive movement of bicarb. And here's where he talks about, they've done experimental models where they've lowered both the PCO2 and the bicarb. And if you lower them both, you don't change the pH and you don't get these changes that what's important is the intracellular pH, not the intracellular concentration of CO2 or bicarb, which I thought was just simple and easy to understand. I loved it actually, <laughs> but it was it was interesting to thinking about that. What's really important is this intracellular pH. Anybody any thoughts there? I was more curious about how the intracellular pH sensing happens because I felt like there's this question of like we think intracellular pH is important. There are some pH sensitive proteins we don't know what they are. At the end of this section, I was kind of waiting for like the one pH sensor in the kidney is X. As I was looking for literature here, and there isn't one, there's like five or six different ones. There's a really nice review by Dennis Brown and Jason, we can link to in the show notes from 2012 that talks about five or six different of these pathways that are sensing pH and how those change either GPCR activity at the cell surface, or they change intracellular signaling pathways. And I thought that was helpful to imagine how all those different inputs might so, lead so, to changes so, in process. So Josh, you know, I remember yeah. learning that a lot of enzymes have an ideal pH in which they work the fastest. Is that mm -hmm. what we're talking about here is that these are the same proteins that just have varying abilities at different pHs, or are we actually seeing different translation and different types of proteins getting transcribed in these different pHs? What, or is it different? For different so it's like a mix. So it's, it's not just that there's like an optimal pH for every protein to work at. It's that there's a pH at which these proteins work if they work too fast, then they lead to more signaling and different transcription downstream and then other stuff gets upregulated. And then there's also like intracellular machines. The VATPase is one of the ones that you think about as like it normally works to pump hydrogen ions, but if the hydrogen ion concentration is really high, you can drive it in the other direction and it acts as a pH sensor. That was pretty cool, I thought as well. So we'll, we'll I, I can put that in the, in the notes as well. We should hide a $5 bill in the notes and see if anybody finds it. <laughs> <laughs> or a link to an Amazon gift card. Do you, do you guys remember, do you know that story from Dubin's EKG book? So I think oh, it, do it, tell. Was a, it was one of the early editions of Dubin's EKG book. It was like in the introduction or the uh, acknowledgements, he says, if anybody's reading this, I'll give you my thun my 63 Thunderbird. <laughs> and, really? and it was like, years later, somebody finally called it up and he wow. delivered the car. And wow. he gave some no. medical student a car. Yeah. Was he like in prison when he wrote that? And later, and later, I think it was child pornography, Dubin <laughs> went to prison. That is correct. Oh what? Mm -hmm. oh, We're not supposed to like his book anymore. Oh, is that true? Are, we, are, are medical students not using Dubin's EKG book? No, you still because use it. But I, no, I think I, we still used it when I was in med school, which wasn't that long ago. But I think there was like, I thought, no, we still use it. Just, I think he was in, I think he wrote it. 
and published it from in prison. No, no. He was, he was in prison was long after it was published. He was already a okay. famous author when that happened. Okay. Okay. Roger, you got on like toilet paper sheets in the prison. Like, <laughs> like bathroom no, no, no. I just admit yeah. it. Yeah. And I think if, if I remember correctly, there's a picture of this cool th- car when he's like talking about the different views of the heart that you can get from the EKG. You can see the pictures of the car and he, he gives it away. Oh, well, well, there's a Wikipedia entry on it. It's awesome. Yes. It, and and whatever he did was horrible and bad things happened to him. I think he ended up being a plastic surgeon. I think he, 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 he was, a, <laughs> no, he, the reality, he ended up for a guy who knew EKG so well, he went into some field that never, he would never have to read an EKG. Okay. It's a brilliant book, by the way. Yes. It really is so good. Then we're talking about the regulation of this. And he talks about, he's going to go through all, all the acid bases. So he starts with metabolic acidosis. He says metabolic acidosis, of course, is going to ramp up that acid secretion. It starts within 24 hours. So you, earlier, he said that you could note increased acid secretion within a couple of hours. Peaks after five to six days. We've talked about that. The increased net secretion is almost entirely due to increased ammonium excretion. We've talked about that. He says that phosphate is generally limited by the diet. That is clear. And the one exception, which I thought was interesting, I never thought of, is that he, he always says that, that titratable acid is always limited by kind of the amount of phosphate in your diet. But the one exception is DKA and all those keto acids are, those are other titratable acids that we don't normally have access to. And that can actually account for a ton of acid secretion that we don't normally account for. I thought that was kind of interesting. I never thought. I thought that was very interesting because I always make the point about in DKA that these anions are lost in your urine. And that's, you know, the phrase I teach the fellows is the the gap is your friend. When he starts talking about, you know, the anion gap, the the excretion of the keto acids in your uh, urine being a titratable acid, that came as a big surprise to me because I always think about them being lost in the urine as a very negative uh, impact on your acid-based balance because- when you have these keto acids in your blood, such as will happen with, you know, lactic acid, you know, you, you have acute lactic acidosis, you shut off the production, sodium lactate gets converted back to bicarbonate. So your net effect, you know, you can be extremely acidotic and within 20 from a seizure and in 20 minutes, it's all normal again. And in fact, um, your kidney retains those lactate, right? Those are all reabsorbed in the proximal tubules, valuable metabolites. They're not, we don't allow lactate to end up in the urine. Exactly, exactly. Unlike keto acids, which go in the urine. And so, you know, there's been a lot written about the fact that in DKA, we give all this IV fluid, you know, a liter the first hour and 500 the next hour. And and what you end up doing is you excrete all these keto acids and they're no longer in your blood as a source of bicarb to be converted. But actually the fact that they could be serve as titratable acid in the urine actually makes me think twice about that, that they're not completely lost. I tell the fellows, the anti-gap is your friend. Don't think of it as a bad thing. It's clearly, you don't want to have it in metabolic acidosis, but the gap is a good thing. You know, when you see a dialysis patient with DKA, you give them insulin and their metabolic acidosis will resolve in eight hours because they have not lost that anion gap. It has, it has nowhere to go. It's kind of ironic that a dialysis patient that can't acidify their urine will repair their metabolic acidosis and DKA very, Roger, very quickly. Roger, I, I haven't looked at this, but does that mean that the ESRD patient that develops DKA, do they not have that prolonged non-anion gap metabolic acidosis after the resolution of the DKA, which is like a part of the natural history of DKA, right? Yeah, no, it, they won't have that. They'll just, they won't it's, have it, that. it's like a seizure. You get an anion gap, your anion gap goes away. Um, oh, that's so because cool. the, the NACMA is, the NACMA is supposed to be triggered by the loss of those 
uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you do lose them. So you give all this fluid and you lose them. And so the argument in these editorials have been, we give way too much fluid for diabetic ketoacidosis because you pee away the anion, your friend, which is a source of bicarb. And maybe we shouldn't be doing that that much. But I never thought about the fact that a urinary anion like this can act, is actually titratable acid. So it's not as bad as I thought. I'd never thought about this. I thought that's really an incredible concept. So yes, it could be a titratable acid, but those ketones are also a big source of the loss or contribute to the loss of sodium and the loss of potassium that occurs in DKA and then contributes to their volume depletion and then the hypokalemia. So I don't know. I don't know if it's your friend or not. <laughs> no, no, it's it's your friend when it's it's your friend when it's in the blood. I guess, but then when it's in the blood, that's because you had renal failure and you couldn't excrete it anymore. Well, that's true. I'm just saying that in the in in the sense that their loss in the urine is a loss of bicarb. That if you can shut off their production, then you can start reversing some of these and convert them back through Krebs cycle to bicarb, and it's not as bad. I mean, that, that, like I said, the example is is acute lactic acidosis. It's a different molecule, but it's the same concept. Once they go down the toilet, they're gone. You've lost a source of bicarb, and that's that's kind of my point. I, I say the same thing a, about the toilet. <laughs> Toilet's your friend. <laughs> or your enemy. Your friend. <laughs> it does say though that you know up to 500 milliequivalents a day. I, I don't know about that. I mean, these things are if they're in the toilet, they're not going to be your, you know, they're gone. Once they're in the tubule, they're still potential sources of bicarb, serving as titratable acid. But once they're in the toilet, they're gone. And you know, we all see that if you do urine. If you do a urinary anion gap in someone that's recovering from this, they'll have a huge anion gap because it's measuring all these unmeasured anions, which is ketones in the urine or keto acids, you know, the salt of the, of the keto acid in the urine. So I don't know about a 500 a day, but it just brought up a really interesting concept to me, which I never thought about that. They're not, maybe it's not so bad. They're not completely lost, I guess is the point. Once they're in the toilet, they're lost, but in the tubule, they're not lost. Are we done with the DKA conversation? Yes. We are done. We are done with that. Okay, great. He then talks about metabolic alkalosis. Again, the alkaline extracellular pH will result in increased bicarbonate excretion, you get decreased reabsorption, and you can also get bicarbonate secretion in the cortical collecting tubule. This occurs in cortical intercalated cells are able to insert hydrogen ATPase in the basolateral membrane rather than the luminal membrane. Did you guys read the sentence that the administration of a thousand milliequivalents of sodium bicarbonate per day to normal subjects only this is a minor elevation in the plasma? That's just crazy town. Like I'm trying to find this original paper and it's like from the 1950s. And I can't find the PDF of it. But like, could you imagine trying to like do that now where you administer like seven liters of isotonic bicarb to a person per day <laughs> for several days in a row and just <laughs> see what happens? It's wild. Too, like, and their endpoint was the change in pH or the change in bi serum bicarbonate? Uh, it's at only a minor elevation in the bicarbonate level in the plasma. In the bicarbonate so, level. Yeah. So, so like if you see metabolic alkalosis, like some kind of impairment in bicarbonate ex excretion has to exist because like normal kidney function and like a whole box of baking soda does not metabolic alkalosis make. That's the whole basis for metabolic alkalosis. You have to have something to maintain it. And because you can just dump it in and you'll just dump it out. It's it requires no work. You filter yeah, it. All those people just, with their alkaline water aren't like methods. You know, alkaline oh. water is a kind of a miss. If you look at how much alkaline you're actually giving based on the hydrogen, it's it's nothing. They think it, it wait, you're telling me this is a scam? Oh, it's a total scam. It's not only a scam. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a scam medically. A... It's a scam medically. I'm just saying it's a scam. 
physiologically because there's yeah. it's there's three more millimoles or three less millimoles. So I think what we learned from the last section is there's like a real business opportunity for acidemic water, which you can actually upregulate a lot of transcription factors with, as opposed to <laughs> alkaline water, which does absolutely nothing. I will say so, the no, official position of Channel Your Enthusiasm that we do not endorse neither alkaline <laughs> water nor acidic water. That is Josh on his own entrepreneurial business. So we like to purchase an advertisement on water. the podcast where Dr. Waitsman's acidemic water will be advertised. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Why is that what, so what is our advertisement rate anyway? Like, can I afford us? I'm not sure. <laughs> Joel's going to have a little cart outside of the uh, of kidney week and pitching his acid water. So I would like the record to reflect, I'm drinking deionized water, completely neutral. It's all I ever drink. <laughs> Mandrake, have you never wondered why I drink only distilled water or rainwater? So this uh, thousand milliequivalents of bicarb, it's like, if I have the math correct, it's about 15 or 16 tape. Uh, tablespoons of, of baking soda. <laughs> JC kind of bungled the math here. 1,000 milliequivalents of bicarbonate is equivalent to 17 teaspoons, not tablespoons, of baking soda. Each teaspoon of baking soda contains 59 milliequivalents of sodium and 59 milliequivalents of bicarbonate. For comparison, a 650 milligram pill of sodium bicarbonate contains 7.7 milliequivalents of bicarbonate. So each teaspoon of baking soda is roughly equivalent to seven and a half pills of sodium bicarbonate. This is like so a liter of bicitra. That's awful. It's a it is a liter of bicitra. That's exactly right. It's a liter or of bicitra. Or 133 bicarb tablets. For those who <laughs> It's 40 TID. <laughs> oh. <laughs> not recommended. Do not try this at home. Do not try this at home. But no, this is interesting because there are certain things that somehow get stuck in my head when I read the read this book years for the first time. We learn in nephrology that there are certain things that the kidney does very well. For instance, retaining magnesium, retaining phosphorus, right? If you are hypomagnesemic, your urine magnesium should be zero uh, or undetectable. And the same for hypophosphatemia. Typically, the kidneys are very good at that. And the other thing that are good is our dumping bicarb. And I think I share a case with you, Melanie, of, of, uh, that I uh, had a while ago. This patient presented with a serum bicarbonate uh, of 46 or 48. And no story short is that the patient had been consuming baking soda daily, a recommendation of a urologist. But the kidney function was completely normal because I always teach, you know, for you to be alkalotic, if you take a lot of bicarb, your kidneys are not working. Something is wrong. You're not, you're well depleted. You have kidney failure. Otherwise, you'll dump it. But this patient presented with completely uh, normal kidney function. So I was pulling my hair. But this last sentence of this paragraph says that bicarbonate excretion will be fine unless you're well depleted. doesn't say kidney failure. But it says if you're chloride depletion, so if you have chloride depletion, we're going to get to that, I think, later on in this, in this chapter, Joel. Uh, but I just want to put a pin on that. that yes, kidneys are great about getting rid of bicarb as long as your kidneys work, as long as you're all depleted or chloride depleted. Yeah, so you could be chloride depleted and not, it may not reflect your, your renal function. Uh, respiratory acidosis and alkalosis. 
He says PCO2 via its effect on intracellular pH is an important determinant of renal acid handling. And then he has the ratios for adjusting for chronic respiratory acidosis and alkalosis, which are slightly different than the ones I teach my medical students. I use chronic respiratory acidosis being an increase in three for every 10 for PCO2. He says it's 3.5. And for every 10 drop in PCO2, I use four for respiratory alkalosis and he uses five for respiratory alkalosis. What do you guys use for those numbers? Use two and four. You use two and four yeah. for respiratory alkalosis or resp- Yes. And for acute and one chronic. and three for respiratory one, three. So you use the exact same ones that I use. Melanie, what do you teach? I actually don't really like these things. <laughs> I'm the same. Letty, you don't I'm like the, them. No, I'm the same because I don't know. First of all, it's like one of these things, like, does it make sense to memorize them when you could easily look them up? And I, I don't I just don't know in in what setting like we would like how we would apply it clinically, I guess I would say. Yeah. I will sometimes I'll pull out, you know, um the chart with yeah. the, the algorithm. It, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Like, and we'll put and uh, one thing I do like about those charts is that those those confidence so, okay. bands come from human experiments. Uh yeah. some of them in some instances yeah. they were patients undergoing anesthesia. Uh, actually, and they were all done in both dogs and humans. Sometimes an anesthesia, sometimes some really wacky things. Like Some wacky things, putting medical like, students in things with high CO2s where they had to bring yeah, them or, very high CO2s to induce respiratory Send them asbestos. to the Jungfrau. What's the Jungfrau? Our, you know, like the, the highest point in Switzerland. Gotcha. Right? And then they have respiratory alkalosis. You can see what's happening there. So I, I like to map the, you know, I like to map the the data to those, but I don't like to memorize the equations. I, I think that's, I don't know, I'm, I'm, you guys already know I'm bad at math, so. Well, I think it's the, the important uh, concept is always understand what is the physiological response that's going to occur in what direction the numbers are going to go, right? You know, this is pretty basic, but we always know that in, a con- in the concept of metabolic acidosis, there is a drop in bicarb. It's known that it, there's going to be some hyperventilation and the partial pressure of CO2 should come down. And to what degree, it should depend on the degree of metabolic acidosis. So it does make sense to me that you should need some sort of mathematical approximation to determine to what degree the PCO2 will go down. To me, it's just, it's, it's important. No, I always, I always check for metabolic acidosis for the respiratory disorders. You're, um, you're good with the winter but, formula, yeah. but the respiratory mm-hmm. ones. But the respiratory disorders. But I, I totally agree with you, JC. I think that you, one of the things that we all do and, and we should do is anticipate what we think should happen. Mm-hmm. And then if it's very far from what we're expecting, then there may be another disorder. So I, totally agree with you yeah no i i get your point i do agree with you that i have a better grasp of the metabolic disorders how to look for the respiratory compensation as opposed to when the primary disorder is 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 respiratory what we expect on the bicarb but like i said the direction is the first step and sometimes you know it Trainees miss that part. And it's so basic, right? If you have respiratory acidosis, your PCO2 is up, the bipolar cannot be trending down. It should be trending up. If it is, something else is going on. And that, you know, we think it's a very basic, but if it gets missed, then you start, people start rolling a paper. And I'm like, stop, drop the pen, right? Do not pull your cell phone. Look 
the direction of the bicarbonate and the direction of the PCO2. If they are in the opposite direction, that's not going to be a single disorder. He has this figure 1112, which is just wackadoodle, right? Just look at the PCO2s. He got PCO2s up to 450. I mean, I've seen some pretty sick patients, but then. No, I pulled that paper actually, because that was so crazy. And they actually, they, they took female dogs and. And they infused bicarbonate. And then they also, in some instances, gave them acetazolamide. Um, And that's how they got those. Those are crazy numbers. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay. I have here, interesting paragraph contrasting the response to chronic metabolic acidosis versus chronic respiratory acidosis. So here what we have is we said, so what's the difference? Here you have the same change in pH, but one of them is driven by a drop in bicarbonate. One of them is driven by an increase in CO2 and you get less urinary ammonium in respiratory acidosis. Major differences in the proximal tubule cell pH. In metabolic acidosis, there is decreased bicarb load So less of that bicarb is to be reabsorbed proximally, right? So in metabolic acidosis, since the bicarb falls in metabolic acidosis, you're just going to be filtering less of it at the proximal tubule. So you have less of that to be reabsorbed. And in respiratory acidosis, you have increased serum bicarbonate, increasing the amount of bicarbonate that must be reabsorbed proximally. Hence, the increased activity of the sodium hydrogen antiporter needs to work harder just to reabsorb that filtered bicarbonate. And it prevents it from increasing urinary ammonia. Well, there's a, I mean, the way I look That's at this- That's wild, is, right? I'm sorry, uh, Roger, I didn't mean to- No, 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 no. The way I look at this is that the, there's a major difference between respiratory acidosis and metabolic acidosis. Metabolic acidosis is from an increased production of, of acid, hydrogen ion. And so therefore, you need to ramp up your ammonia excretion to keep up with it. Respiratory acidosis is a new steady state at a higher PCO2. And therefore, once you reach that higher steady state, you're, you're not producing more acid, you're just living at a higher PCO2. So you need to create a higher bicarb to co- compensate that, but you don't. You know, that's a one-time thing. You don't need to keep producing more ammonium and therefore more bicarb. It's a one-time thing to get you up there. So there's, that's, I think, the big difference to me. In respiratory acidosis, the kidney compensates by increasing bicarbonate reabsorption. This bicarbonate is generated through ammonia genesis, basically the loss of hydrogen in the urine as ammonium via the sodium hydrogen antiporter in the proximal tubule, which allows for bicarbonate generation as Joel notes. As a consequence, you have increased net acid excretion. However, as Roger alludes to, there are differences in acute versus chronic respiratory acidosis. In acute respiratory acidosis, because you're quote-unquote generating bicarbonate, you have an increase in net acid excretion in the form of urine ammonium and urine titratable acids. But in a chronic respiratory acidosis, you are in a new steady state. And so actually the net acid excretion reduces as the ammonia genesis is enough to maintain the new serum bicarbonate level. So urine ammonia excretion remains elevated, but there is a reduction in urine titratable acids. One difference in metabolic acidosis is that the urine pH will be low due to excretion of acid. However, in chronic respiratory acidosis, although there is an increase in ammonia genesis, this is actually counterbalanced by the bicarbonaturia and the urine pH is higher than in control. This has been nicely demonstrated in hypercapnic mouse and dog models. Did that make sense? Yeah, it does. But I think it's interesting also this role of the filter bicarb. I, I never I never looked at it that way. You know, if he says 
because of the filter bicarb is low in metabolic acidosis and it's high in respiratory acidosis, that is ultimately going to influence the intracellular pH in the proximal tubule and determine uh, regulation of ammonia genesis. I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was pretty cool too. I was really, I was like, whoa. Those are some of the most charming moments of reading Burning Rose, where you're like, I understand this concept from a certain perspective, and he just shows it to you from a different perspective that you've never seen before, and it physiologically makes sense, and you're like, wow, kidney is super cool. Yeah, and this is one of those moments that I loved. Yeah. The next section I have is going on to the effect of circulating bone. Let's go. So, so he starts He starts talking about experimental models where you start with bicarbonate infusions. We talked about this way back at the beginning of our journey, where we talked about people that are getting bicarbonate infusions and that how important those bicarbonate infusions that not only do they get bicarbonate, but they also get sodium. So they're in a positive sodium balance. So then what's the opposite of volume depleted? They're all volume overloaded. And in, in that situation, they begin to spill bicarbonate as soon as their serum bicarbonate rises to 26. And that he mentions that if you volume deplete the patient with diuretics first, that TM for bicarbonate will increase to 35. And I remember he talked about like the rat, the TM for bicarbonate was like 60 or something. Like as long as you get them depleted, they're going to retain more and more bicarbonate. This is something that we're all familiar with from metabolic alkalosis. And that he then lists four factors that explain this increased TM for bicarbonate with volume deficiency. So one, very simply reduced GFR. Two, activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And he kind of walks through five elements of this, that angiotensin 2 stimulates the sodium hydrogen antiporter proximally, angiotensin 2 stimulates the sodium 3-bicarbonate co-transporter on the basolateral membrane. Then in the distal nephron, aldosterone stimulates hydrogen ATPase, aldosterone stimulates a chloride bicarbonate exchanger on the basolateral membrane, which is important because we thought we're going to talk about chloride deficiency later. And if you don't have any chloride, you're not going to get any chloride bicarbonate exchange. In the At the top of page 354, he talks about the idea of why you're retaining bicarbonate when you are volume depleted is that it's an attempt to maintain volume by preventing further sodium loss. And I feel like that just seems totally obvious, but for some reason I had not thought of it that way before. And this is another one of those like volume is king of all things kind of moments for kidney. And Roger like is giving me that look from like when we were talking about hyponatremia too, right? It's the same thing that just like the ADH system is primed to keep every molecule of water because it gives you a little bit of volume in the setting of hypovolemia. Same deal here in the setting of hypovolemia, keep every sodium and bicarbonate even whatever happens to the acid-base status be damned. Uh, so I thought that was actually really cool here. I'd rather be alkalotic than hypovolemic. That's yes. what I always say. Do you ever use this analogy that especially like in volume depletion and RAS activation with reabsorption of sodium chloride? Yeah, I always like to say that the kidney is so smart that it's giving itself a little sodium chloride bolus, like to try to retain water. So it's like, this is why this is such a beautiful mechanism, such a beautiful organ, because it is, it's giving itself a little sodium chloride bolus. Nice. The last one is that ALDO will stimulate the ENAC, producing a lumen that is has a negative charge to allow hydrogen secretion to occur and prevents back diffusion. So the five things, again, are ANG2 stimulating hydrogen sodium, ANG2 stimulating sodium uh, bicarbonate co-transporter on the basolateral, ALDO stimulating hydrogen ATPase, ALDO stimulating chloride bicarbonate exchanger on the basolateral membrane, and ALDO stimulating the ENAC channel. That's five. So in addition 
to the reduced GFR, and in addition to the activation of RAS, there is also hypochloremia, which is another factor that increases the TM for bicarbonate with volume deficiency. And hypochloremia, this is independent of what we talked about with activation of RAS, will be increased hydrogen secretion by both sodium-dependent and sodium-independent methods. And he says, if the sodium is 140 and chloride is 115, only 115 of the sodium can be reabsorbed as sodium chloride. The remainder must be reabsorbed as bicarbonate or associated with the secretion of potassium or hydrogen to maintain electroneutrality. So the less chloride you have available, if you want to retain that sodium, you need to start retaining it with bicarbonate or associate sodium retention with secretion of potassium hydrogen. That's so cool, right? Absolutely. It is, again, another thing. Like I never thought of like, oh yeah, you can only reabsorb as much sodium as you have chloride. And then you have to find some other anion to reabsorb that sodium with. The only problem I have is he keeps using the term hypochloremia and that's concentration of chloride. And that's, it's not really the concentration of chloride. It's the amount of chloride that's available. So you could be hypochloremic with hyponatremia and it's not playing the same role. Right. Cause there's less sodium to be absorbed at the same time. Yeah, so, That's yeah. right. So it, he uses it over and over again and it, it's okay. I just, it's not the concentration. It's the availability of chloride relative to, to sodium. Relative so, to the sodium. Yeah. It's really cool. Okay. And then the now, this is all before we really knew about Pendrin, right? Is, isn't that the whole problem here? Is that this was a pre-Pendrin? Yeah. That's exactly right. The exchanger Roger is talking about is Pendrin, the anion exchanger on the luminal surface of type B and non-type A intercalated cells. If there's one thing I love, it's a cool story of medical history, and the discovery of this exchanger is a very cool story. It started in the 1890s when Dr. Vaughn Pendrin discovered a family in which two of ten children had congenital deafness and goiter. It's now called Pendrin syndrome after him, and through careful study, he determined that other families had this syndrome. Only about 7.5 out of 100,000 people had the syndrome, and it was inherited in an autosomal recessive fashion. For 100 years, it was thought that it was only related to thyroid and ear because those are the most readily observable traits in the 1890s. In 1997, 100 years later, Lorraine Everett and her colleagues at the NIH published their work identifying the gene responsible for Pendrit syndrome. They went on to clone the gene SCL26A4, and blots were then able to be performed in a variety of tissues to test expression. As you'd expect, the expression was very high in the thyroid and the ear, but it was noted to be high in kidney tissue as well. Further immunohistochemistry studies showed that the expression was localized to the apical surface of intercalated cells. Over the mid-1980s to 2000s, experiments done by Jill Verlander at the University of Florida, Susan Wall at Emory, and others were being done to elucidate the role of the type B intercalated cell as a whole. They found that while normal intercalated cells secreted bicarbonate and absorbed chloride in response to aldosterone in a sodium-independent and electroneutral fashion, this didn't occur in Pendrin null mice. Thus, Pendrin was identified as an apical electroneutral anion exchanger in non-type A intercalated cells. One last thing. It's worth noting that, in mice at least, the amount of chloride and bicarbonate exchange that's observed is not completely explained by the activity of Pendrin. So if we record this podcast again in 10 or 20 years, there will probably be a new Pendron to discuss. Yeah, it's interesting because here focuses focuses in this particular uh, mechanism of the relative lower uh, concentration of of chloride respect to the sodium that creates this imbalance and is important in acid handling. But the other factor, as you said, Roger, that determines the ability to 
secrete bicarbonate is through this uh, pendring or the chloride bicarbonate exchanger in the intercalated B cells, which is the only site of the nephron that we know of where bicarbonate is secreted in exchange for chloride. So if you have no chloride in the tubular lumen, you can't secrete uh, bicarbonate. And this is why it's so critical to replete chloride to a patient with alkalosis because either you do it with sodium chloride, potassium chloride, that way you can feed into that exchanger and be able to secrete bicarbonate. And there are actually a couple more layers to the chloride depletion that I have read in other chapters of the book. One layer that talks about the tubular feedback. Remember that the macular dense express the sodium potassium to chloride transporter and the chloride is sensed through that protein. So if you have no chloride, that is going to trigger prostaglandin release, renin release, therefore angiotensin 2, therefore aldosterone. And we just discussed that aldosterone activates hydrogen ATPS pumps and get rid of acid. So that, this is another layer where chloride depletion or low chloride in the tubular lumen will lead to acid loss, which obviously is not something that wants to happen when you're in metabolic alkalosis. Never thought about that. That's pretty cool. There's actually one more uh, <laughs> uh, factor. Yeah, it's just crazy. So there also Barton Rose talks about how um, the hydrogen ATPase pump, we just discussed, the one that's stimulated by aldosterone and the collecting duct. There's actually co-secretion of chloride uh, that allows, because you're dumping a positive charge with a pump. And somehow it talks about the need for a chloride to be co-secreted. And, and that goes to a concentration gradient. So if your chloride in the tubal lumen is low, that's going to favor more co-secretion of chloride. In other words, helps this pump to dump more acid. Hey, Josh, you know, you brought up the concept of volume and, you know, hypovolemia. You don't want to dump bicarb to dump sodium. That kind of makes sense. If you give volume, you should be able to dump bicarb, but it's more than just volume. As we pointed out, that volume has to have some chloride. And the nice experiment of that was taking metabolic alkalosis with volume depletion and giving albumin back where you can mm -hmm. replete the volume. But in the absence of chloride, you won't be able to dump the bicarbon. To me, that was that made me understand more about Pendrin than any other thing that was explained to me. Yeah, I, I wonder, are folks still assigning this like it's chloride depre depletion alkalosis, not contraction alkalosis paper to their fellows when they see like contraction alkalosis stuff? Yeah. So this is like a, a Jason 2012 paper that we'll link to in the show notes as well by these two folks, Luke and Gala, who did all these like rad experiments in the 80s and 90s. And they do exactly what Roger's saying. They like volume deplete these rats with diuretics and then they either load them back up with volume with non-chloride containing solutions like albumin, or they load them back up with saline or something else with chloride. And only the correction of the chloride depletion resolves the metabolic alkalosis. And so it really like, it's really compelling evidence from animal models and from, from people models. They do this to people too, when they could still do this, you really need chloride to work through Pentrin, which we didn't know about when the book came out to fix this acid-based problem in the first place. Yeah. I think in that seminar paper, they also gave sodium sulfate or sodium phosphate mm -hmm. just to prove that it wasn't the sodium was the chloride. 
And then the last method that I want to emphasize there was four. The last one is concurrent hypokalemia. And he says that changes in potassium lead to transcellular shifts that affect intracellular pH. And this was also very cool. We had talked earlier that what actually triggers renal hydrogen handling is the intracellular pH. And that basic concept in medical school, when you have hypokalemia, when you have a low serum potassium, one of the processes that adjust for that is you're going to have potassium leaving the intracellular environment, going to the extracellular environment. To maintain that electroneutrality, you have hydrogen moving in the inter- in the other direction. And so you'll get an intracellular acidosis, even though when we're talking right here, we're talking about metabolic alkalosis with hypokalemia, the whole body is alkalemic, but the intracellular environment is acidemic. And so the kidney is responding to that intracellular acidosis and is going to retain bicarb, even though the whole, the rest of the milieu is alkalotic and you'd want to dump that bicarb because of the hypokalemic, you're getting a missignaling and the intracellular acidosis is confusing the kidney. When I think about shift of potassium and hydrogen, I, I automatically get my head out of the kidney. And I think what's going on with red cells, what's going on in the bloodstream, we talk about those immediate changes, but here, he is describing a mechanism of cell shift that occurs at the proximal tubular cell and leads to some regulatory consequences. I thought that was pretty interesting and something that I haven't really looked at it that way. I'm glad you pointed out that that's in the proximal tubule. So I think of this, so you get the proximal tubule then, you said retain bicarbonate, but I think of it as excreting more hydrogen. I know those are sort of the same thing, but when you have hypokalemia, then you would like to not lose any more potassium. And so if you can rev up ammoniogenesis, then you'll have more ammonium excretion distally rather than K loss. And so I think that it may be because of that shift in the proximal tubular cells, but by design, because perhaps potassium is more important than pH in this instance. And so by having that extra ammonium made, now you have more available to bind hydrogen and then less K loss. Oh, I like, you're the PR person for the kidneys. Somebody said the kidneys are confused and you're like, hold on, no, no. This is very important, Melanie, because this is like the theological explanation that we always try to find. Why is that potassium has anything to do with ammonia genesis? It's not intuitive for us to make that connection, but you're describing this is very nice. And and that's been observed. There are really nice experiments that have shown that in the setting of hypokalemia, that there'll be this effort to lose less K, if you will. I, I don't know if this is the time, Joel, but we're talking about plasma potassium and always in, in this context of acid base, I think about type 4 RTA immediately. And I want to get your thoughts on this because most of textbooks that will say type 4 RTA is with hyperkalemia will decrease ammonia genesis. Uh, therefore, you end up with acidosis, you know. But sometimes you have situations where, you know, let's say you hypoarenin hypoaldo patients, diabetic patients uh, or patients that are in medications that block some part of the angiotensin aldosterone axis. Those patients might be hyperkalemic. And why are they also acidotic? 
my approach has always been, okay, well, Aldo is in charge of this hydrogen ATPase pumps to get rid of acid, right? So if you uh, have Aldo, it makes sense that you're going to be less capable of dumping acid. So no surprise, you get hyperkalemic and acidotic. The second explanation is what I typically read is this hyperkalemia decreases ammonia genesis. Therefore, you cannot generate ammonium, you cannot excrete acid. They are, in my mind, not really related mechanisms. And then there's one more layer that he describes on this page 358, which relates to this ammonia recycling. Once again, the sodium potassium to chloride co-transporter. Here's the situation we described earlier, how ammonium, the sneaky ammonium or the promiscuous ammonium <laughs> uses the potassium site to recycle and keep the high ammonia concentration in interstitium. But if you are hyperkalemic, the ammonium is, I guess, less able to be recycled and you impair your ability to damp acid. So I see three different ways how hyperkalemia have partaken lead to acidosis. I don't know if these are mostly theoretical and which of the three is really the most important. Well, here's a question. Have you seen a lot of acidosis in your type 4 RTA patients? Uh, great question. I have. I have to tell you mm -hmm. that it's not universal. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Most like you look at calcineurin inhibitors, usually is hyperkalemia. But I think I've seen enough to, mm -hmm. to uh, consider that there is a connection. But you're right. I mean, most of the time, hyperkalemia is in isolation. You look at ASON arms, mm -hmm. for instance, you know, even with MRAs, you know, acidosis is not as common as hyperkalemia. But I would say that it's there in a fraction of patients. I always say lots of K and very little A in those RTAs. <laughs> but I worked at the Jocelyn for 10 years, and I saw a lot of patients with diabetes and a lot of patients on ACEs and ARBs and some patients on mineralocorticoid antagonists. And I did not see, maybe I saw one patient with a bicarb less than 20. It's really uncommon, I think. And, and I wonder if it's something different from other patients who have what maybe what might've been called an RTA before. Two, maybe the fact that you said what you just said, under 20, you know, but you see a lot of them, 21, 20, yeah. Yeah. 22. I mean, I think that's still abnormal. It's it's a mild mm -hmm. defect, but yeah, it's just maybe not clinically significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You typically, if you just correct a hyperkalemia, you do a medical intervention to correct a hyperkalemia, the barker will, will correct. You really have to do a separate intervention, like give biker to the patient. Anyway, I was just uh, curious. Yeah, we're going we're to have think. an entire chapter on non-anti-get metabolic acidosis. We're going to have a lot of opportunity to discuss this. I think this is, I'm, we're going to table this and move forward because there's not going to be a third session on chapter 11. We are going to get it done tonight. We've got three pages to go, but there's a I lot of hope for us here. We're going to do it. Okay. PTH, this decreases proximal bicarbonate reabsorption. Uh, does anybody have a good handle on what's going on here? Yeah, it's not true. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, but I pulled that can you, paper can also. Can you describe what's not true before you tell us why I don't what is think, true? I don't think that actually PTH really 
decreases bicarbonate reabsorption. I don't think that's true. And so I pulled that paper, the reference 153 that he was talking about, how hyperparathyroidism would therefore cause metabolic acidosis. And that was not the case. I don't think that's consistently true that hyperparathyroidism, primary hyperparathyroidism causes acidosis. Josh thinks otherwise, maybe. No, no, no. I thought the opposite direction association was kind of more clinically relevant. The acidosis effect on PTH was kind of more interesting. Yes. Walk, Josh, um, why is that interesting? Walk us through that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what he talks about here is that the acid load stimulates PTH secretion. And I didn't dig in the mechanism here. I know we're however many hours into the podcast. So I right. spare we're, we're, mechanism thank here. you. We appreciate it. Um, but I think like from like a, an MBD, like mineral bone disease management standpoint, this is really important. Like the reason we're supposed to treat acidosis in people with CKD is for some vague reason about bone health. And it might have something to do with this, that it might have to do with acidosis leading to increased PTH, leading to increased bone turnover and breakdown of bone stuff. And if we can manage acidosis but, with bicarb, maybe that's a good thing. But the, but the reason why it makes sense, right? That Getting, why would you want to metabolize bone in this acidosis? Because oh, you have all of these ions in bone you use as buffer, right? Bone's like the biggest buffer in the body. And the cool thing about solids is they don't count towards solution. So like yeah. once you take your acid out of the solution, it's no longer in solution. You can keep moving it in, the, in that one arrow direction. And that phosphate that came from the bone is a is. titratable acid. It mm-hmm. absolutely metabolizes. Not only will you buffer the yeah, hydrogen at the bone level, but that release of uh, phosphate when it's excreted by the kidney is a titratable acid and helps get rid of that acid load also. Which so I was that's a cool. really like adaptive thing in a short-term acid load situation. It's a really maladaptive response in the long-term you know, CKD acidosis yeah. setting. It's, it's too bad that Melanie told us it was all a lie. No, no. The, the other thing is a <laughs> no, lie. That, the, no, the PTH part... leading to acidosis is a lie. The acidosis changing PTH, stuff, that, that, that we think is still true. I agree with you. I'm sorry I jumped ahead on that. I was too excited about it. The effect of arterial pH on, on ventilation seemed too respiratory for me. I have no notes on this. Does anybody have a summary of what he said? Because I got nothing. I looked up like a neuron review on how like the brain senses CO2 and pH and stuff. And there was something kind of neat here. Like the PCO2 is freely diffusible into the CSF, which is cool, but bicarb is not freely diffusible into the CSF. So there's like a weird delay from like respiratory stuff to like brain sensing your acid-based stuff, which I thought was neat. Uh, and we can put that that review in the in the show notes but yeah we're we're all kidney people we don't really care about respiratory oh, stuff actually we're also going to we're also going to spend a whole chapter on the respiratory disorders we, we are we are definitely going to in case anybody was missing that we are going to spend a whole time doing that and i agree with roger we're not <laughs> gonna be i will be chapter. conveniently sick for that session we may we may need to find some some pinch hitters here as i'm as, as our written nephrologists fall off but we will find those pinch hitters i, no, I think we will enjoy that when we when we really dig into it but i wanted to say that I have this crazy favorite paper. It was in the New England Journal. And what they did, they had, they took patients who came in with different disorders. Most were DKA and they did simultaneous ABGs and the equivalent on CSF. And then they gave people bicarbonate and then the patients worsened temporarily. And it was because of this process that Josh just mentioned, where they stopped breathing as much, but the bicarbonate had not yet uh, moved into the CSF. And also in this paper, there's even a Charlie Brown face of sadness (laughs) that goes with the diagram. It's one of my favorites. So it must be old. 
I wish we could do emojis <laughs> and papers. Like, like that would be so much better than like just boring line graphs and bar graphs. Like just this is how I feel. You know, I do that in my live notebook all the time. It's like angry face. But anyhow, is so that is a real thing. And uh, and and then when we get to respiratory disorders, I know we will behave ourselves and do a thoughtful job. So figure eleven nineteen, I think, is like the and everything else is commentary type of figure for this for controlling the vasodilosis. It's like this is the hierarchy of what happens. There are many levels to buffering acidosis and he kind of acid loads and alkalosis loads, alkalemia loads. And he kind of walks through the hierarchy and the order that they occur. You get this hydrogen load. And initially there's an extracellular buffering by bicarbonate. And then you get this respiratory buffering by decreasing CO2. And then you have intracellular and bone buffering. And then finally you have renal excretion. And that's just kind of like this hierarchy that you need to handle, which I loved. It'd be pretty bad if bone buffering was like your number one. Or the like, final hold, one, hold, right? Hold on, let me just right. mobilize my bone. No, and I think it's important that it's a temporary situation and presumably reversible, that once you get rid of that hydrogen load, you're able to re- restore that that bone. So I think that's I think that's very kind of cool to think about. And it is also cool that in the, the renal part, that we typically think about days, is actually hours to days. And you touch on one part of that in terms of the, the quickness, in terms of the urine pH, immediately helping you to get rid of acid. And Melanie, you pointed out to the to the source of ammonia that is already there, they don't have to be made from zero. So those two elements seem to be, uh, seem to allow the kidney to start getting rid of acid within hours uh, of the acid load. Uh, and all, of course, all the other mechanisms take place later, days later. Okay, I'm gonna call it for tonight. I think uh, I think we're done here. I think this is a good chapter. Um, what do we have? What's our next chapter? Where, where do we go from here? Unless anybody has some other final thoughts. I'm, I'm actually delighted that we got through an Fantastic. entire chapter without Roger saying the word evolution. Evolutionarily, this was amazing success, guys. I love it. <laughs> we have potassium like homeostasis in chapter one. That should be good. I'm sorry, Anna, what did you say? And we didn't talk about like the like South Americans times, either. That's true. We did not talk about any indigenous person. <laughs> <laughs> You don't miss me when I'm gone. Roger, we love you. And we, we it's just, it really, it's, it's you know, just this quick. is the personality of the show. I love it. I'm, um, I'm delighted. And and, uh, and it, it's good. And I don't love audio time, but I know Joe will see the thumbs up from Roger. We did, I, I, we're, we're just a chapter ahead of us in, when I do it with my fellows. And we did this ch- potassium chapter and they loved it. They were there. They're like, this chapter, this book keeps getting better and better. Right. Because I mean, you're nephrology fellows. Like all you do is do battle with potassium every day. Right. Like that's your job. You're like, I'm the, I'm the sheriff of potassium. <laughs>